May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I'm delighted to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary all the way across the street. <laughs> I am an Episcopal priest, but I am the Dean of Students over at the seminary. And let me tell you, our Presbyterian students are very jealous of Episcopal vestments. <laughs> very shiny. I'll do a quick PSA before I begin preaching. Our Education Beyond the Walls department has a lot of wonderful educational opportunities for laypeople, such as caregiving, remembering our creator in older, older adulthood, Day of the Dead, a conversation about souls, bodies at worship, and writing the body, welcoming the joy, a memoir workshop. There are flyers out in the back. You are welcome anytime. Despite our name, we're a learning community for the whole church, not just Presbyterians. We live in an age where learning, or at least being exposed to information, is easier than ever. My son is eight years old, and so we hear a lot of, Alexa, what's the tallest building in Austin? Alexa, what's the biggest city in the world? Alexa. Is the Eiffel Tower bigger than Big Ben? We're very concerned about the height of buildings and population of cities in our house. And yet, as in increasingly obvious in the news, having access to information doesn't necessarily mean that people will choose to absorb it, interpret it well, or apply it in helpful ways. And even if we could know every fact in the world, and interpret it well, and apply it in helpful ways, we would still have questions. Life is full of crises that are unanswerable by data. Why do some people seem to suffer more than others? How long will I have to live? Will anyone ever love me? Will I or my family or this church make it through this crisis? Will our country make it through its crisis? These broader questions of meaning are exactly why Hebrews was written. The church that's receiving this letter is struggling. They're a second-generation Christian church who's been waiting and waiting and waiting for Jesus to come back as promised. He has not. While they've been waiting, they've suffered true persecution. People have died. They've been scorned and excluded. Being part of this church has been really hard. We know how people drift away during an ordinary church transition. So just imagine the discontent and lethargy of a church who's been through all that suffering and waiting. The author of Hebrews wants to encourage them in their faith. He wants them to come back to church. He wants them to engage in the practices that will reinforce the faith that already exists in them. Now, when people need to be encouraged, facts are not terribly helpful. You can look up the survival rates of whatever you've been diagnosed with, or look at stats of how many people get married at your age, or how long the average unemployment lasts. 
but these facts probably won't leave you feeling great. What does help is appropriate stories. Stories of people who've been through what you've been through and made it. A pastoral note here. Horror stories are not what's needed. For some reason, people have a powerful need to tell pregnant women their nightmare birthing stories. <laughs> or folks who've been diagnosed with cancer, stories about how their aunt died unexpectedly after having stage one of that exact cancer. Don't tell those stories. What we need are survival stories that we can tell ourselves as we fall asleep at night. This is exactly what's happening in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. The author wants to encourage the church to remember the stories of the faithful people who've gone before them. Much of this chapter is edited out of this lectionary reading for brevity. We would be there for 10 minutes listening to all of it. But he reminds his listeners of the faith of nine different biblical figures. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Rahab. He's connecting this congregation to their history, reminding them that they're not the first to journey with God to unknown destinations. They're not the first to encounter suffering because they follow God. He reminds them many of these heroes did not get to see the outcome of their faithfulness. Abraham died before knowing his thousands of descendants. Moses died before entering the Promised Land. The people in the congregation are suffering, and they may not live to see Jesus return, but he still wants them to have faith. After reminding them about all these heroes of faith, in chapter 12, he encourages them to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight for your feet so that what is lame may not be, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's telling these stories as a way to encourage them to give them confidence. He's giving them a biblical pep talk. All these stories of faith belong to you too. The stories of Noah and Abraham and Moses, but also of Sarah and Ruth and Esther. Stories of Jesus and the loyal women at the tomb and the brave disciples who went out into the unknown to tell Jesus' story. The Bible is a witness to the complicated life of faith. It reminds us that faith is not straightforward. It reminds us that even our greatest heroes have flaws. It reminds us that there was never a perfect church community. The disciples bickered. The rich Corinthians gobbled up communion before the poor Corinthians could even come to church. And the Galatians, whoo, they barely got a hello from Paul before he laid into them about their bad behavior. When I was in college, which University of Richmond tells me was 20 years ago, which is very rude of them, I was surrounded by tall, blonde, Virginia lacrosse-playing goddesses, and I felt a little anxiety that anyone might ever fall in love with plain old me. I had a very lengthy and awkward adolescence. I happened to be in a campus ministry Bible study of the Book of Ruth. The Bible study leader knew of my anxiety and made sure I internalized that Ruth was loved not for how she looked, but because of faith and persistence, hard work, and character. I'm not sure that's how I'd interpret the text now, but at the time, that story of faith gave me something to hold on to, 
until I met my husband a decade later. Lucky for us, our stories of inspiration and encouragement don't stop at biblical texts. We have 2,000 years of Christian saints and sinners to inspire us. Whether you need a French gender-bending visionary warrior like Joan of Arc, or an African-American 18th century abolitionist and priest like Absalom Jones, or a deep contemplative who had a life-changing vision in Louisville, Kentucky of all places, like Thomas Merton, Christian history has a story just for you. A story of encouragement, a story of blessing, a story of God showing up in the unexpected. And there are stories in this congregation that I don't know, but you do. There are people here who have shared Jesus' love with you, priests who have anointed you, women who have spent hours planting gorgeous flowers to share Christ's love with the neighborhood, moments in the liturgy when the choir hit just the right chord and the Holy Spirit filled this place right up. In this time of national turmoil and your own church transitions, you might tell yourselves these stories. Remind each other who you are together, how God has shown up for you, who God might be calling you to be. On a whim, I did ask Alexa who God was calling all saints to be. <laughs> uh, she said, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Siri, Google, and Bing aren't sure either. But God knows. God's not going to give you a blueprint, but God's given you plenty of stories. Read the stories. Tell the stories. Your faith is in there. Amen.